1: And welcome to another episode of Preparing for the Unexpected. I'm your host, Alex Fullick. And as always, we like to talk about things related to business continuity, disaster planning, emergency response, uh, crisis communications, uh, resilience, and anything that really uh, touches on any of those subjects. Uh, As always, I'd like to remind everyone, if there's a specific topic you'd like us to talk about on the show... Please feel free go to the Voice America webpage for for the show and there's a button uh, sends uh, something along the lines of send uh, the host an email or send a note. Um, please feel free send me a note what you'd like us to talk about and we'll see about finding someone to talk about your topic or or I'll get in touch with you and see about getting you on the show to talk about your subject. Either way is fine with me. I do get all the emails and I do respond to everything. And I like to uh, tell everyone that in Uh, May 29th to 30th, I will be at the Continuity and Resilience Today conference in Toronto. You may recall, uh, we were there last year and we got some great speakers and guests on the show. So we're going to be there this year and we're going to see if we can maybe up the ante a little bit, maybe do uh, something different uh, for the show. But uh, please feel free to join us in Toronto on May 29th to 30th. Now, today's guest, um, I've wanted to talk to for a little while. Um, We had a little bit of a technical hiccup the last time on on my end, um, so I take the responsibility for that. And it's uh, uh, about a book that I thought was a very key topic, especially, um, unfortunately, really, in today's world, uh, terrorism, how we respond. Now, um, the Irish Times says, if you want to read one book which explains the phenomenon of terrorism then this is the book for you. So I'd like to introduce uh, my guest is the author of this book, Professor Richard English. Professor, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks very much, Alex. Delighted to be with you.
1: Uh, How are things? Uh, You're calling us from Belfast today, correct?
2: I am. Belfast is peaceful but still divided. And at the moment, the politics of Brexit have meant that we're more divided than we've been for some years. But it's nothing like what it used to be when I first started working here in 1989. It's nothing like what it used to be when there was daily violence and daily killings or attempted killings. So it's a wonderful city. It's still got some deep divisions and legacies. uh, But it's it's a great place to work and a great place to live.
1: I've, heard, I've had a couple of friends who've actually been there, and they said it's really beautiful, and the countryside around there is just wonderful.
2: It is. It's a lovely part of the world, and it's a real pleasure to live and work here.
1: Well, great. I'm happy to have you on the show. Can you tell us um, something about yourself, you know, how you got into what you do, and you know, what you do now, and how the book came about? Um, I would like the listeners to know a little bit about our, our guest.
2: Of course. I, I was... Born in Belfast, and then, as my accent indicates, I grew up mostly in England. My mother was from Belfast. When I was at university, I got really interested in the politics and history of Ireland, and in particular of the IRA. I became an academic and wrote a book about the IRA and their politics and the people who opposed them and how it all ended. And then just as the IRA were leaving the stage, if you like, in the early 21st century, the 9-11 atrocity and the responses to 9-11 meant that the whole world really became interested in the question of terrorism in a different way, and so I thought what I'd try to do was to look at the wider issue of terrorism, not just in relation to Ireland, which I'd worked on before. So I wrote this book called Terrorism, How to Respond, which you've kindly mentioned, which was trying to say, if we think about terrorism historically, are there things that we can learn from the intuitions you get from history, which would help us historically to think about how best to respond to the risks of terrorism, how best to respond to the kind of challenges that this unexpected threat faces for our century now. And that was why terrorism, how to respond, emerged. So I'm a university professor, but I'm also an author who writes books on terrorism, on Ireland, on responses to terrorism, and that's what I spend most of my time doing. It's through teaching, it's through writing, I've gone around the world giving lectures on the subject, and I've always found that when you engage in conversations about this, you learn a huge amount about the different contexts within which terrorism is faced, different and different countries, different in different periods.
1: And I've even noticed, I I did a lookup, you've even been on the BBC a few times.
2: I've been on the BBC a lot. Yeah, one of my friends said that whenever I'm on the television, it probably means something bad has happened because it's normally after a terrorist (laughs) atrocity. Um, But I've done quite a lot of media work, uh, the BBC, but also uh, in North America and uh, in newspapers around the world as well. So normally about difficult topics, but trying always to think practically and calmly about how we can minimize the threat, which I think is is in tune with the show and is in tune with the way in which you prepare for the unexpected.
1: Well, well, let's jump right into that topic then of terrorism. My first question, can you define what terrorism is? Because let's face it, if you watch the news today, there are some global leaders. If you don't agree with them, you're a terrorist. So what really is terrorism? And what is it It's not? a great
2: question and a really difficult question. In public discussion, people tend to use terrorism as a term to refer to the violence of people they don't like. In other words, you tend to use it against your enemies. What I think is better for us to do is to see terrorism as a particular tactic. Now, overwhelmingly, I think it's a tactic which doesn't have any justification. My argument is it causes certain horror and destruction and loss of life and loss of limb, whereas it's benefits in terms of political change are very questionable. But I would define it as politically motivated violence with a deliberately psychological aspect to it. In other words, you're trying to create a very high-profile, high-publicity effect through violence to bring about a political goal. When we define it, some people use it only to refer to non-state acts. But another way of looking at it would be to say that certain regimes through history Hitler's Nazi regime, for example, Stalin's Soviet regime, have used mass state terror. And I think it's legitimate to use it in that term as well. But normally in public debate, when people are talking about terrorism, they're talking about non-state political violence with a deliberately psychological symbolic effect. My view is that you should use it in a way which refers to all such violence, not just to the people you disagree with. But as you suggest, what political leaders tend to do is pick on their enemies and try and present them as being the terrorists
1: and that's what causes confusion because for me cuz sometimes i'm i'm watching news reports and i think well i don't understand how are they a terrorist if they just don't feel the same way you do they're not doing anything
2: yeah i mean i think that the the definition is all about legitimacy and illegitimacy. Uh, I I would rather focus in a way, when we're writing and discussing this, I'd rather focus on why it happens and what its consequences are. So one of the things which I think is really important to stress is that most non-state terrorist groups through history have ended their campaigns without achieving their central goals so where people tend to turn to terrorism because they think it's the only way of bringing about change in practice historically the change it brings about tends not to be the one which involves the headline goal there are occasional examples of it achieving its central goals but much more commonly it achieves tactical successes or revenge or publicity but it doesn't achieve the great millenarian change which its advocates or its practitioners legitimates its use in terms of so in that sense I suppose looking calmly at it I'd rather approach it as someone who's approaching the subject in a dispassionate way rather than a condemnatory way. But having said that, because obviously it causes such high emotions, the horror, the challenge, the unexpectedness, the fear that's produced means it's a difficult subject to be cold and calm about.
1: So how does it start? You know, I, I know for many people, um, let's say myself, here watching TV and all of a sudden I see a event and it's attributed to a group. But obviously that group had been around longer than that the the event that happened you know the disaster or the you know whatever they've done so how does that group come about like what causes people to create a terrorist group
2: So I think the question there, in terms of the organisation, what tends to happen most frequently is this, that a group of people rally around a particular grievance. Sometimes it's a grievance about a national group that thinks it needs a particular freedom from an existing state. Sometimes it's about a religiously motivated cause and organising things in terms of a different religious group. Sometimes it's about an ideology of left or right, so there have been very right-wing ideologically motivated terrorists and there have been Marxist, left-wing ideologically motivated terrorists. So the first thing is there tends to be a grievance but there's also a sense that every other method isn't working so typically what you find in terrorist interviews or in terrorist memoirs or in terrorist propaganda or argument is the only thing we can do to bring about the achievement of a free nation the defense of our culture the defense of our religion the change in economic or social politics the only thing we can do to make that work is to use violence so then they try and organize the dynamics of it then tend to be as follows that a small group initiates some kind of violence at attacks, there tends then understandably perhaps to be a big response to it, maybe rounding up of suspects, maybe in some cases military action. And you often get a tit for tat escalation with the violence on all sides going up. So if you look at the relationships repeatedly between the Israeli state and Palestinian opponents, if you look from where uh, I'm speaking to you today in Ireland with the British state and Irish Republican adversaries. But also if you look at the post-9 eleven response, the atrocity of nine eleven caused a huge response by the United States which led to what some people have called the 9-11 wars, including Afghanistan, including Iraq, and you get a tip for that escalation of violence. So what you find is a complex process whereby, yes it's about grievances, yes it's about politics, but it's also about the dynamics of people hitting back and then hitting back again in an escalatory process which normally makes the conflict much more intense quite quickly and that's the kind of conflict we hear about, whether it be in Colombia, whether it be in the Basque country, whether it be in Israel, whether it be in Ireland, whether it be in Afghanistan or Iraq. And I think that those escalatory dynamics are the ones which we've really got to try and look at carefully to see are there things we can do to try and take the steam out of that cycle to try and deal with it in a way which causes fewer deaths. So,
1: so terrorism comes out of, you know, you've tried every other resort and uh, it, it, it stems from what I guess you could say people not listening? You know, they, they feel they're I not think, being listened I, to, and that's what ca- causes them to, to I create that
2: I think what I would say is that while terrorist organizations tend to say this is the only way we can bring about change, I'm not sure I'm convinced by that argument in most cases. So I think quite often what yeah. you find when you look back after a long period of violence. And a lot of these campaigns go on for a very long time, tragically. They go on for decades and sometimes even for centuries on and off. When you look back at it, I think the claim that the only way you were going to achieve something was through violence often turns out to be unpersuasive. So I think where there is a problem with listening is that my approach to these things is that often there are grievances where people need to be persuaded that the most effective way is to do it through peaceful means or through normal channels. Now, it may well be that that's the case, but people aren't being made to see that, that they're not being made to feel that that's the way, that if you're trying to present a certain kind of political change, are there ways of doing that that don't involve violence? If we take the most recent set of atrocious things over recent years that's grabbed the headlines the violence of ISIS, I think it's true that ISIS violence has been atrocious. It's been appalling. I think it's damaged people's lives, including Muslim people's lives, in huge numbers. But I think the problem Mm -hmm. was that many people in that community, particularly in Syria, felt that their violence was the only way to bring about change to what they saw as being illegitimate. The key thing, I think, is to try and offer alternatives which are persuasive. And I think they often can be. I think it's often the case that peaceful methods of change are going to be more effective than violent ones.
1: Do you think that some of these uh, terrorist groups are coming about simply uh, as copycats rather than even trying to be diplomatic?
2: You find that there's a lot of imitation. So, for example, if you look at the politics of suicide bombings or suicide attacks in the late 20th, early 21st century, a lot of different groups with different kinds of local grievances saw suicide violence as being a very effective tactic in terms of attacking an enemy it was hard to get at in terms of seizing publicity. I think also if you look in the last 17 years or so since the nine eleven atrocity, if you look at the Afghan and Iraqi hostility to the US forces and the allies, a lot of the improvised explosive device technology was about imitation and about tactics. I think it's also true that some of the, what are called lone actor attacks, the kinds that have been in Western Europe, in the United States, in Canada. Sometimes what you get is very high publicity for some of those attacks, and then other people have a kind of copycat. So there the question is about the relationship, I suppose, between media reporting and the thing catching on. So while it is crucial that the media do report things, it's also crucial that we think about the consequences of them gaining too much attention, because you don't want to encourage copycat violence, which will cause people to lose life and limb.
1: Well, that that's interesting. You said that because I was going to ask you that you know, with social media these days and you know everyone's availability to it, you know, everyone's we've all got access to to social media, even in you know third world countries now. People have phones and everything. So, is that uh, causing greater levels of terrorism, or has there always been a great level of terrorism? And social media is just bringing it to the forefront.
2: It's a really good question. I think what social media does is it accelerates the speed with which people can hear about things globally so in the 19th century for example anarchist terrorism was a global phenomenon but if something happened in Chicago it would be much less easy to find out very very quickly the details of it in London or in Belfast than it would be now because now you can get your phone and you can hear about it very quickly the dynamics of social media are really interesting in the longer term I think that the violent acts that terrorist groups do the historical record tends to be that that violent causes revulsion amongst most people, but it's also true that sometimes in the early cycle of escalation that I was talking about, the showing that you can, as a group, carry out successful lethal attacks can sometimes attract recruits. So you get this paradoxical process where a group like ISIS, for example, for a time seems to gain publicity, a sense of having momentum, and also recruits through putting on videos and putting on social media appalling incidents of their own violence. But in the longer term, the pattern historically has been that overwhelmingly most people find that kind of thing to cause revulsion. So although social media Extends the reach globally and really increases the acceleration of people hearing about things whether it will mean that more people are persuaded long term to join terrorism i'm not so convinced about
1: and i think on that note will be a perfect spot to end our first segment because i've got a whole bunch of other questions for you and i know we've got some other topics to touch on Um, today we're talking with professor richard english the author of terrorism how to respond and we'll be right back
2: the
3: internet's number one talk station number one talk station Voiceamerica.com.
0: attention if you're a parent educator social worker or civic or religious leader the most important program you'll hear this week is exploited crimes against humanity host opal singleton and her guest Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll turn up your perspective on life.
3: Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling voiceamerica.com.
0: Listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone road.com. Again, that's info at stone road.com. Now back to preparing for the unexpected.
1: And welcome back to the show. We're talking with Professor Richard English, uh, the author of the book Terrorism How to Respond. Uh, Professor, in the last segment, you gave us uh, uh, lots of great information on what terrorism is. And I was wondering, um, with some of the things you were saying, how are these terrorism campaigns sustained? You know, they, they, we do, we've do we heard for years now about ISIS. So how are they continuing to do what they do when, you know, United States and, you know, all the other governments around the world, we're not backing off? So what's sustaining them? Why do they keep going?
2: It's a... It's another really good question. I think one aspect of it is that the, the groups that we pay attention to in terms of terrorist groups, whether it be ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas in the past, the PLO, the IRA, the FARC, ETA, these groups, however awful the violence they carry out, tend to emerge from enduringly complicated problems that politically just aren't very easy to solve. If you take the Israel-Palestine conflict, it's been going on for so many centuries, one way and another, that the grievances around which the violence emerged have a kind of long life to them. So that's one thing. I think a second thing is that once you get the conflict up and running, the dynamics of it being sustained are often to do with tit-for-tat cycles of very local violence. So in addition to the overarching ideological or political motivation, there's a kind of street-by-street, bomb-by-bomb, bullet-by-bullet process of retaliation, and that can sustain it. And the third thing is that these groups, the logistics of these groups, involve a kind of organizational dynamic, which is almost independent from the grievance at certain points. So, for example, if you think about many businesses that are non-violent, perfectly normal, orthodox businesses, they might be promoting a certain kind of brand or they might be promoting a certain kind of lifestyle, but there's also the business that you go to work each day, you get into the habits of working, you have colleagues who you work with, you get into a momentum of doing your job day by day. And strange though it seems to say it, many of these organizations exist in ways that involve a kind of day-to-day work and that can be self-sustaining organizationally. So I think there are three main ways of sustaining it. One is the cause, one is the tit for tap escalation and sustenance of revengeful and retaliatory violence and one is the fact that you're kind of going to work and doing a job and you get into the habit of that some of the people their livelihood emerges out of this some of the people their whole friendship group emerges in the organization so there's a kind of day-to-day normality of it as well
1: that raises an interesting point with the the normality of it and with social media does it in a way glamorize and that's what causes people from around the world to join these causes, you know. Oh, it looks interesting, you know. It and maybe "glamorize" is not the the uh, correct word to use, but I, I think you understand what i what I'm what I'm saying.
2: I think the glamorized point is a fair one, because quite often what happens is that people join for all sorts of reasons, some to do with the grievance, some to do with the cause, but also sometimes to do with adventure. You find sometimes it's to do with rebelling against parents or against the somewhat stultifying adult life that people are in and looking for escape. I think what I would say is that the glamour doesn't tend to last all that long at an individual level. In other words, you tend to get involved Mm. in things sometimes and groups have a certain excitement, but much of it's quite dull, much of it's day-to-day and quite boring. Some of it It's dangerous. Some of it involves doing terrible things. Some of it involves narrowing down your experiences of life because it's clandestine and it's on the run. But what you do find is that in the recruiting phase, there's undoubtedly a sense that particular... How can I put it? Inspiring individuals, some mentors, people who can offer a sense that they are someone around whom you might want to rally, that that can produce an important effect. So, In addition to the social media aspect of it, there's also still very much a personal aspect. When you look at the dynamics of groups that have carried out violence, quite often you find that someone has around them a group of followers group of friends, sometimes family members, and they offer inspiration to go down a certain route, and that can draw people in. It doesn't then suit everybody. Some people fall away, some people become very committed, some people lose their lives, some people go to jail. But what you find is that recruitment is one of the big aspects of terrorist organization, and it's one of the things that they find often to be one of their challenges because, as you say, any major terrorist organization will have a major state that's opposing it, and often a number of states. Al-Qaeda, Hamas, the PLO, the IRA, Al-Qaeda, all of these groups had formidable states opposing them, and I think that means that sustaining them takes an awful lot of work in terms of not only getting recruits, but keeping recruits committed, keeping recruits committed to the cause week by week.
1: And with the the people that you know eventually leave and go off, I'm assuming that would kind of weaken the these terrorist groups and is that what what ends them? Is that why they end, or do they just kind of give up or you know does someone do they win you know how does do these groups end like these terrorism campaigns end
2: very occasionally you find that groups end because they secure the victory that they 're looking for much more commonly you get a kind of gradual Degradation of the cause. So sometimes people find that if the movement has been going on for decades and hasn't been achieving what it was supposed to achieve, people's sense of momentum, commitment, effectiveness diminishes. So, for example, if you take the Basque separatist group ETA, that's broadly what's happened with them. The violence was causing more revulsion than it was political momentum, and people fed away. Now, Part of that is what you're referring to where you get individual defections. In other words, you sometimes get people just losing interest and dropping away. You sometimes, very damagingly for a group, get people becoming informers or becoming double agents, and that does huge damage. But also you get a sense that the wider population on whom they're supposedly drawing for support increasingly becomes disenchanted. One of the things that's quite a frequent pattern is that major terrorist organizations that have sustained the campaign for a generation, if they find that they're not making significant progress through violence towards their goals, they often try and find some alternative route to do politics in a different way. I think the PLO would be a case in point. I think the IRA would be a case in point. In many instances, terrorist groups find it very difficult even to sustain themselves for a year or so, but we tend obviously not to study those groups so much because they're not historically so significant. So, there's an individual erosion. There can be an erosion of the cause. Sometimes, for example, if you find that in the late 20th century, there was a series of waves of very left wing Marxist terrorism, much more difficult to justify that after the collapse of communism because the cause seems to be going against the wave of history rather than in favor of it. So sometimes the ideology itself can take a bit of a kicking and can falter. But the main thing which makes terrorist groups come to an end, I would argue, tends to be that the method doesn't seem to yield the results that it was promised to yield and people begin to think well it's not there for something they want to keep joining it's not there for something which the civilians around them want to keep supporting and it fizzles out but painfully for us painfully for everybody involved i think this often takes a very long time if you think about a group like al-qaeda founded in the late 80s think of all the enemies al-qaeda has faced it still has some life in it yet decades later and i think if you think about hamas founded again in the late 1980s it still has much life in it in gaza so these are long time periods that terrorism's involved in. And therefore, I think one aspect of responding to terrorism, which I try and deal with in my book, is not being too short-term. It's not time to promise we can solve this quickly, because probably the groups that are the most important ones to deal with are going to be around for some time.
1: Well, that, that brings me to another interesting point. If one group ends, you know, and you still have... Uh, you know, some people in it still can you know, with their conviction of what they want to do and what they want to accomplish, even though most everyone else in the group is gone. Uh do they end up rebranding themselves or, you know, joining other groups to create other causes? You know, what happens? I I, I don't know if it's it's if it's fair to say that, you know, one group kind of stops to exist and everyone just kind of lays down their weapons or their negative thinking and everything's hunky-dory. You know, I I can't (laughs) think that it happens like that.
2: No, you you very rarely get a complete ending. So, even when groups fizzle out fairly significantly, if they've been a major group, if they fizzle out and die as a politically famous group, there'll still be some remnants. What you tend to find is one of three things happening. Either the remnants are so small when it's a tiny band of people and it's Maybe occasionally violent, but it's societally quite trivial. Second thing is what you find in Northern Ireland at the moment, which is although overwhelmingly people have moved away from the kind of terrorism that there was here 30 years ago, there are still groups that are on a daily basis trying to do things. It's just that they have a much smaller support base and a much smaller logistical operation. The more significant one is where the groups or the cause generate really major new forms of violence. So, for example, if we'd been having this conversation in the 1970s in terms of Palestine, we'd have been talking about groups like the PLO, whereas now the PLO largely has moved into a different kind of space. But Hamas and some of its fellow travelers are carrying out violence in the name of Palestinians. Again, if we have been having this conversation in 2001, 2002, 2003, we'd have been talking about al-Qaeda in terms of global anti-Western jihadism. Al-Qaeda still represents a threat, but in recent years, since 2014, and the main focus in that territory, ideologically, has been on ISIS, which in some ways emerged out of al-Qaeda in Iraq. So sometimes you get a transition to something major, sometimes it fizzles out, but still has some occasional teeth, and sometimes it becomes societally trivial. What you're looking for, ideally, is that the cause which people kill in defense of or in pursuit of, is something which people can pursue in ways that are less bloodstained. And when you get that kind of resolution, that's the nearest to hunky-dory that I think we get. But with most of the things that we're talking about, these are major political issues. These are major political problems. And it's unlikely that they'll end up being completely peaceful if they've had a terrorist campaign of any significance around them.
1: Well, if if terrorism is, you know, all about fighting, at least what we see on on the news, you know, fighting and blowing up buildings, and it's just You know, horrific. Some of the scenes and things that we see and hear. How do we fight that? You know, if if it's you also politically. The argument
2: in my book is that there are a number of things you can do which won't get rid of it completely, but which will minimize the worst of it and limit the likelihood of the levels of violence being high for a long time. I think one is that we need to recognize that. The root causes don't justify the terrorism, but the root causes have to be identified. In other words, you have to know honestly why it is people are actually doing what they do so that you can try and find alternative ways of resolution. A second thing is, I think, for Western liberal democracies, there's a huge temptation to transgress your own legal restraints, to treat prisoners very differently, to be somewhat draconian. Generally speaking, I would argue that that tends not to work, because it tends to give grievances to your opponents. So for example, if you mistreat prisoners and torture them, if you engage in violence yourselves against people which is considered transgressive, that makes it easier for terrorists, not more difficult for them. So I think for example, while there is a role for military action in response to terrorism, probably states tend to exaggerate how much that can achieve. A third point I'd say is we need to be very credible in the things we say publicly about terrorism. There's a tendency after a terrorist atrocity to say they have no political support, they're just insane, they're just criminals. But most of those big groups that we're talking about, there is political support. It's just that it's supporting violence, which is reprehensible and probably ineffective. So I think a credibility of state response, I think maintaining the difference between the way we treat people and the way we obey our laws and the way terrorists transgress them, I think not exaggerating what military means and the on their own can achieve. And I think recognizing that painful though it is, we need to but see what the grievances are, not say those grievances justify any atrocities because they never do, but try and deal with taking the sting out of the anger which supports some terrorism. Will that end all terrorist violence? No. Is it likely to limit terrorist violence? I think it would. So if, for example, in the wake of 9-11, if there had be less of an emphasis on the military and more of a protection of the kind of ways in which we treat prisoners and we treat citizens and we respect our laws, and more of a recognition of genuine violence, I think we probably wouldn't be facing the kind of ISIS crisis that we have done in the last four years because I think our response would have been more moderate and more effective and would have saved more lives.
1: So how, with the credibility how do you if you know you're not the, um, the terrorist group you're not the supporter of the terrorist group you're um, let's say you know here in Canada I'm, I'll say the Canadian government you know how do we you know. Uh, the public, obviously, when we see these news, we're going to be angry and furious. So, uh, as a government person, how do you remain credible and not say, "Yeah, these people are crazy"? You know, how do you get around that? Because you've got a population that are you know, furious, but you know, on a, we're kind of feeding in to what the terrorists want. So, how do you? How can you stand there and you know and say, you know, uh, you know, no, these people aren't crazy. They've got some valid points, you know, or, you know, how, how do you manage that? That's got to
2: be difficult. It's an incredibly difficult thing for any politician to do, particularly because the emotions are understandably so high after a terrorist atrocity. What I would stress would be that people in political life could make some of the following points. So first of all, for example, in Canada, in the United States, the levels of danger or death from attacks from non-state terrorist groups are very, very low set against other threats that people face. In other words, there's a sense of proportion which we need to keep notwithstanding the terrible suffering that people experience after a terrorist attack. The second thing is a reassurance that actually over time, terrorist groups tend to fade away, fade away in a way that the legitimacy of the Canadian government or the US government does not. And the third thing is to stress what terrorism does and does not achieve. In other words, I think to say terrorism can be stamped out, we'll get rid of it during the period of one person's regime and political authority in a country like the States or Canada or the UK, I think to promise short-term victory is unrealistic. To promise that the historical likelihood is that terrorism will come and go, but actually the state, the capacity to protect its citizens and the defense of certain kinds of democratic rights will endure, I think all of that is credible, but it also undermines terrorists. Okay? If you overreact to a terrorist atrocity, in a way it makes their life slightly easier because it means they can attract more recruits, they can attract more grievances. If you respond calmly in a long-term way, yes, making sure that you pursue the culprits, yes, making sure that you combat them in effectively, ways, making sure you gather the intelligence necessary to arrest and convict people but reassuring the public that the state will protect them, that they're overwhelmingly safe, that life should go on as normal and that the state will endure. That's a perfectly credible thing and makes the terrorist's job much more difficult. If I'm in charge of a country and I promise to get rid of terrorism during the next four years all terrorists have to do to gain a kind of victory over me is still to be existing in four more years. If I say that terrorism historically tends not to achieve its central goals but the best way to your goals, to pursue your politics are through normal democratic means. That's a more reassuring thing for the population to hear, but it also takes the steam out of the tit-for-tat escalation which can sometimes feed the terrorism that we're trying to get rid of. But it's not an easy thing to do. It's much easier as a professor to write a book about this than it is to get elected and re-elected as a politician and I fully respect that. But I think states need sometimes to be more long-termist and more dispassionate and calm in their responses so they don't inflame things and make the situation worse before it gets better,
1: and that I guess that would you know feed, like you said, feed the the cause. You know, it's like yeah, go, one, so, what, what, like a person. For you, example, you get when a, a I've rise been out of the people
2: who've been involved <laughs> in a group like the IRA. the easiest time they had to get recruits was when the UK, the British state would overreact. In other words, if an IRA act prompted a British overreaction and maybe heavy handedness by the British army, that made it easier for the IRA to get recruits. And you've seen a similar process in the post 9-11 period in terms of jihadist terrorists as well. And however painful it is for states to be restrained, very often the most effective way of countering terrorist campaigns over generations and saving lives is to be sturdy, to defend just citizens to defend your interests, but to do it in a measured way, which deals with the problem proportionately.
1: And on that, we're going to take our second break. We are talking today with Professor Richard English, the author of Terrorism, How to Respond. We'll be right back.
3: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com All around the outermost rim of the shield, he set the mighty stream of the river Oceanus. Creating Achilles' shield in Homer's The Iliad, book 18. Rachel Carson, in the sea around us, said, All at last, return to the sea, to Oceanus, the ocean river. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are listening to Preparing for the Unexpected with Alex Fuller. Email your questions to info at stone-road.com. Again, that's info at stone-road.com. Now back to preparing for the unexpected.
1: And welcome back to the show. Today we're talking with Professor Richard English, the author of Terrorism: How to Respond. We've been getting some great information of what terrorism is and you know what causes it, how it even comes to an end. Um, in this segment, Professor, I'd like to know you know from the perspective of someone like me, a business continuity person or a disaster planner or emergency response how do I prepare for terrorism? You know, what what should communities and organizations do? What what kind of plans, you know, how do we deal with it ourselves?
2: It's a really, really crucial question because however effective states are in combating terrorism, it's impossible to stop every attack. So the assumption we have to deal with is that we're going to have to learn to live with it. So the question really is about resilience. A number of points there I think are really important. One is that in the wake of a terrorist atrocity, you need to have well-rehearsed, coordination of different aspects of how people respond. So it's not just about the police or the military, it's about ambulances, it's about hospitals, it's about the media, it's about transport, it's about how you maintain the continuity of essential services. If you have an attack at an airport, if you have an attack in a downtown area of a financially vibrant city, you need to think, how do we make sure that if something happens on Monday, life goes on Monday through to Tuesday, Tuesday to Wednesday, and you get that normality. So in a way, grisly though it is to say this, what you need to do is assume that the worst is going to happen and think how do we mitigate that? How do we make sure we minimize damage? So for example, in terms of lives lost and damage done to people after an atrocity, how you respond very quickly to it will make the difference between whether some of the critically injured people survive or don't, whether some of the people who have been injured have a terribly life-threatening and life-changing injury or are able to be dealt with. So I think it's about all the different services, all of the different elements, having preparation for coordination. I think another thing is that there's a in terms of attitudinal resilience as well. So quite often you find that there are things where people think the world has changed totally after an event. So some years ago, there was a very famous appalling incident in Paris. I was due by chance to give a lecture on terrorism the week after the Paris attacks. And the people who invited me rang up after the attacks and said, do you still want to come and do the lecture as if I would not want to go to Paris because there'd been terrorism? And my response was, I'm even more keen to go to Paris after this because it's crucial that you show that the life of a major city like that isn't going to be stops by one wave of admittedly horrific attacks. So there's an attitudinal resilience that people need to keep on doing things, and in the wake of atrocities, we need to keep on showing that this will not transform our lives. I think the other thing in terms of preparing for business continuity is that the media the Orthodox traditional media as well as social media has a very, very important role to play because you can sometimes present it as if in the wake of an attack on a major city, let's say a Canadian city or a US city or a European city, that somehow everything's changed and we should hunker down and pretend that life is totally changed. Whereas in a way, what the media need also to say is let's find out about what happened, let's have honest and open discussion about it, but let's also recognise that the media has a job in recognising that people are going to continue their lives overwhelmingly. Terrorism in western states for example it's been around for several centuries now it's something which people have lived through even through appalling atrocities and the transformations of different causes into violence and out of violence so the media have a role to play in terms of how we as a society carry on and i suppose also at individual level there's a the question of can people say i'm not going to let a terrorist atrocity transform my experience of being in Canada, of being in the States, of being in Britain or Ireland. I'm going to maintain what I think normal societal life should be like, despite this threat which we now have to learn to live with, rather than pretending we can entirely get rid of it. So,
1: so for the social media aspect, it's to, you know, not just focus on what happened, you know, and unfortunately the death and destruction, but also the, the good aspects that come out of it. You know, how people helped each other and, you know, those kind of things, right?
2: I think that's often the most much more important story. In other words, I think quite often what you find out about people and societies and small groups and large groups and cities is actually that resilient story and i think we need to pay as much attention to that as to the bomb going off or the people being shot i think we need to show how people manage to survive quite often you also find that people come together in remarkable ways and there's a resilience you saw that uh, in, in in manchester with the terrible attack that there was there that there was a kind of resilience to the city and a defiance to be normal and to carry on with normalization and i think that whether it's in In a Canadian city, in a U.S. city, in a U.K. city, in a French city, wherever, that kind of thing should be through social media, but also I think through mainstream media. We shouldn't forget the things that people have done to keep life going, to keep normality, to maintain aspects of normal society. Sometimes I think the anniversaries of violent attacks, which have become famous as well as understandably reliving what happened and looking at why it happened. I think looking at the ways in which people have managed to mitigate the longer-term horrors and to maintain a normality of life, resilience, and preparedness for normal business is something which is equally important to pay attention to because it's a story of hope as well as a story of tragedy.
1: Well, that's the, the, the kind of it reminds me of the uh, award-winning musical Come, Come From Away. I'm far away. I forgot the actual title now. Um, from all the airplanes that landed in Gander, Newfoundland. You know, there, there's even been marriages now, close friendships, you know, and an award winning musical all about that. You know, it brought out the best in people in one of the worst, you know, if not the worst situation in, you know, American history.
2: And you often find that there are acts of extraordinary courage, that there are acts of extraordinary kindness, that there are people who have extraordinary compassion and forgiveness afterwards, and that aspect of our human capacity is something which is also part of the terrorism story, and in a sense, I think to allow that to breathe, to whether sometimes to give creative expression to that through art is something which is important too, and sometimes in the memorials to events, we need to recognize that extraordinary positive human set of qualities that emerges as well.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned, uh, you know, rehearsal, you know, being resilient with rehearsals, coordination with all groups and ambulances, police, fire, everything. What would your thoughts be on having organizations, you know, like uh, large companies involved with those? Because I, I hear about those exercises that are happening and it's always the first responders. However, organizations, you know, large companies, you know, facilities have their own plans and responses so it always, to me, seems like they would be working against each other sometimes. Would you recommend organizations that that, being involved?
2: danger that that will happen. I mean, the one way of looking at it sometimes is to get a particular city to think of itself as a city rather than as part of a country. In other words, what would happen in a particular city? Who are all of the different actors? Some of them private companies, some of them state operatives, some of them just citizens going around their business. But within a particular area, who would be the various different actors? Sometimes private firms have quite elaborate now obviously risk analysis they obviously have security people they have planning but in a way that needs to be linked into the way that other firms working locally for example will have their own plans and also the way in which the state itself will respond so i think the key thing about it is communication it's sharing information it's preparation it's avoiding duplication and it's making sure that while you hope that nothing's going to happen in your city if it does happen you're in a way being able to collaborate private public and i've seen there's there's been work done on that significantly, for example, in London in terms of thinking what happens because London has been historically one of the major targets of terrorism. What happens in London in terms of how private firms and the state cooperate? And it's not perfect ever, but it's something where the more mm-hmm. conversations you have, the less damage there's going to be done, even when a terrorist attack actually tragically occurs.
1: Well, I've, I've always thought that you know, some of the private companies, they've got additional resources that can be leveraged. You know,
2: that, that Sometimes they've for, got huge issues, and also you know, they have anything. a commitment to try and make make sure that business continuity is what is ensured. So I think that it, private and public has to be in collaboration here, and also different states collaborating together. So, for example, if you're looking across the border, often there are, there are neighboring cities – where the effects of a particular atrocity will bleed over the border. I mean, in a way, the damage done when you have violence isn't going to respect national boundaries, and quite often you have collaborations which need to be international as well. Within the European Union, in the wake of 9-11 and some of the attacks since then, there's been a greater attempt to try and get a European Union-wide response to terrorism so that it's not easy for people to fall between the cracks and get away, but also so that the effects of something on one country from a neighboring country are not... uh, utterly negative, but can be mitigated to some extent. So I think there's collaboration at city level, at country level, but also internationally. And the key thing is for people to prepare and to prepare with as many partners as possible so that when things happen, and in most cities it doesn't happen very often at all, but when something does happen, you can limit the damage as far as is possible and continue with business and continue with societal normality.
1: Well that comment got me intru- uh, thinking of lessons learned. Do you think that um, you know based on your comment with Europe, you know having one response that that's coming out of hopefully people talking together to understand lessons learned, you know putting actions to the things they've seen to have better responses. Is that happening? Uh,
2: it does happen and it happens in a way which means that you can get a lot of progress sometimes what you find is in the wake of a particularly famous or challenging episode for a brief period, there's that kind of learning and then people forget about it until the next one. What we really need to do Building on what we've just been saying about resilience is to make it mainstreamed into the way people do business. So rather than thinking terrorism is gone, we realize it's something we permanently have to learn to live with, but we learn that we can live with it in a way which allows life to carry on normally and allows life to carry on in a sustained way. So, what you need is for institutions, organizations, relationships to build it into being part of what everyone has to deal with so that you can kind of keep. Keep anxiety at a limit, and so that you can limit the damage when something does happen. There has been progress in Europe. There's certainly been progress in North America in terms of some of the things that have been learned and the the responses. But if you think about the United States of America, for example, all of the different police forces coordinating, that represents huge challenges. And so what you need to do is to make coordination within a state and between states the natural thing rather than the exception after a crisis.
1: And you mentioned, um, you know, assume the worst. Can that can there be a drawback to that? Because if you assume the worst, you know, I know, I I know, because I've worked with people, they tend to get a little bit panicky, you know, if you if you understand my it's, meaning, you know, and 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 don't want to deal with that.
2: It's a it's a danger. I mean, I don't think you want to go on publicly, endlessly saying there's going to be something happening, because for the most part, that's not true. But I think in terms of the preparation by governments, by first responders, by businesses, I think what we should assume is that terrorism is going to be something that will continue throughout our lives, throughout the lives of the next generation, throughout the lives of the next generation. In other words, it's not panicking to say that we need to assume this is a problem we face. And just as we face problems with health or problems with ordinary crime which aren't going to go away but you try and limit the damage through preparing calmly for them so too with this So i wouldn't want to be alarmist about terrorism but i wouldn't want to pretend that between crises it's going away and we can forget about it because what will then happen is we won't limit the damage as well as we might because we haven't been preparing as efficiently as we could be
1: kind of kind of like that you know the the denial thing you know denial isn't going to help the situation
2: No. I don't think it will. I think being realistic, being calm, looking at the evidence, looking at what does work, and learning to live with this bloodstained phenomenon is the best way of minimizing its awfulness. And I think what we need to do therefore, is not go through cycles of denial and overreaction. We need to have a calm, consistent way of preparing for it and to try and protect people as far as we can and limit it happening in the first place.
1: Well, we've only got uh, less than four minutes left. Um, would you like to take a, a minute or two to give any final closing comments on your thoughts on uh, terrorism and you know on anything?
2: Just, uh, possibly two things I'd want to mention. One is that I think when we are thinking about it at an individual level, there are things that people can do. In other words, sometimes you'll find in the history of terrorism, someone becomes alarmed about the behavior of someone, and without wanting to be snooping on each other all the time, occasionally there are things where that has meant that people have interrupted something before it's happened so everyone can do something to limit terrorism. The second thing I'd say is we really do need to keep the threat in proportion. Terrorism causes appalling merciless violence to cause loss of life, to damage people's lives in terrible ways but set against some of the other things that cause people to lose their lives, whether it's through disease or through threats of other kinds of, of disaster. It's something which is not the worst threat that's facing Western society. So I think keeping it in proportion and having a sense that everybody can do something to try and minimize it and keeping calm about that is probably the best way of dealing with this. So in terms of terrorism, how to respond, I've argued in my book that there are things that states can do, there are things that police can do, there are things the media can do. But I think individual citizens calmly going on with their own lives and being sensible about the behaviors they see around them can also contribute to keeping us as safe as we possibly can be through this coming century. Uh,
1: Just staying with that point, I'm gonna ask a quick question. I probably don't have time for it, but I'm gonna ask anyway. should people be concerned, you know, when they see something that bothers them, should they really step forward or because so so many people get nervous, you know, if I say something and i'm and I'm wrong, what happens? You know, do you have yeah, any I... comment about that, you know, for people who so, see so, something?
2: For the most part, people are not going to encounter anyone who's going to carry out terrorism. But in those unusual cases where there is something that's genuinely alarming, where people think that someone is entering into a dangerous situation, it's possible to talk to someone discreetly in authority and say, I've got these concerns. If it turns out to be harmless and nothing at all, it's better to err on the side of caution. As I say, in the most case, no one's ever going to encounter this stuff. But there have been instances where people have said, look, actually, I'm very worried about this. Someone seems to be stockpiling weapons. Someone's behavior seems to be very strange. On those occasions, I wouldn't confront them at all. But I think you go discreetly to the authorities, raise your concerns, and they can deal calmly with it. Sometimes in the history of terrorism, that has saved lives. And as I say, most people are never going to encounter the behavior which they need to respond to in that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to thank you very much, Professor, uh, for joining us today and giving us some insights on terrorism. Uh, th- you know, I know you're joining us from Belfast today and your your day is probably coming to an end. So hopefully you get to go home and relax for a little while. So thank you very much for okay. joining us.
2: Thank you very much indeed. I've enjoyed the conversation. All the very best. Thank you.
1: Thank you. And to everyone listening out there, you know, again, if there's a subject you want us to talk about, please feel free. Send me a note. And uh, I will respond. We'll see about getting you on the show or getting someone to talk about your your subject that you want us to, uh, to talk about. And again, um, I will be at the Continuity and Resilience Today conference, May 29th to 30th, 2019. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you, Professor uh, English. And in the meantime, stay prepared, everybody.